This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, what a game. The Rush have a 1-0 lead. Steve Dietrich and Jeff Cornwall stop by. Cluche and the Tar Hills are on top of the NCAA Mountain. And I have to talk about Sundays in the Cave. All this week on OTCB. Lacrosse fan, and welcome to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast here on SoundCloud and NLL Radio. My name, as always, in case you haven't forgotten, is Teddy Jenner. Maybe it's because you've forgotten that my name's Teddy Jenner. I don't know, pretty forgettable. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me here at the show, you can. It was a rousing start to the show. I'm not forgettable. Let's just get faster. I am memorable. My mom said so. Um, Twitter, at Off the Crossbar. Email, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. We are off to a fantastic start. Just like game one of the Champions Cup final. Did you watch it? How many times have you watched it? Because I've watched it four times. I feel like my nephew bragging about how many times he saw Star Wars before I'd even seen it once. I have gone back and watched it and watched it and watched it. I've watched it by myself. I've watched it with newbies. I've watched it with diehards. And everybody is in agreement that it was an absolutely fantastic lacrosse game. And really, are you surprised? Is anybody surprised? No. Not at all. The bigger surprise will be if Dane Smith doesn't win the MVP. Because I wasn't surprised with this. I will be surprised if Dane Smith doesn't win MVP. Sorry, Evie. Gotta give it to Dane. And Dane's gonna have to do some work now. Uh, along with the rest of the Bandits, to get their club back to Banditland to force Game 3. They are down 1-0. They fell 11-9. But they don't exactly have to reinvent the wheel to go into the tune and beat the Rush this coming Saturday. I thought Buffalo played an absolutely fantastic lacrosse game. A couple bounces here or there. And this is a completely different game. I think Dane hit the post late. Um, Aaron Bold just continued to make huge save after huge save, allowing the rush to come away with a victory. Uh, at the other end, equally as impressive was Anthony Cosmo. He did everything he could to keep that game close in the first quarter where it was just 2-0 for the rush. But Cos and Bold both did phenomenal jobs shutting the door when needed. I thought both defenses played well. There weren't a whole lot of power play opportunities. I think five in the whole game, maybe. The refs called a fantastic lacrosse game. Banditland got to see a good one. Those watching on TSN, TSN Go, and ESPN3, and 
ISN, maybe the international sports network that was playing in the Far East. Um, shout out to them. I got to watch a game in Bali there last year, so I kind of remember. Kind of being the operative word. But all in all, you have to be happy no matter who you are. You know, if you're Buffalo, you got to be happy because you say, you know what? We played a really good lacrosse game, didn't get a couple bounces, but we were right in it, and we've already beaten these guys once in their own barn. Now all we got to do is go do it again. Sounds simple. For the Rush, they're happy because they get to go home with a one nothing lead and get to play in front of their home fans. And hopefully for them, home floor advantage will come into play. Because beating Saskatchewan in Saskatoon isn't easy. Doing it twice is even harder. Especially now that you've played or these teams have played each other twice already. The Rush will have a great scouting report. They will know what to expect and what to look for. And moving forward, the Bandits are just going to have to be that much better if they're going to want to tie this thing up and head back to Buffalo 1-1. I think Buffalo needs a few things to go their way. I think they're going to need more production out of uh, guys like Veltman and Culper. Um, Anthony Malcolm was good. Steiner was good. I think if they get more contribution from Culper and... Who did I say was the other guy? Third guy. Third lefty over there. Who is he? Quick, give him to me. I just said his name. This is what happens when you have concussions. You lose names. Veltman. There it was. Found it. Uh, Daryl Veltman. Because you have to have balance. Because if you don't have balance... It's easier for the rush to shut you down. And if you get shut down by the rush, defense, number one in the league, number one all year long, you're going to be in for a long night. Because that team feeds off of their defense. Mostly because that defense feeds the engine room that is the transition game of the rush, which is, you know, if... Offense is their, or defense is their bread and butter. Offense is their specialty. Transition is just their natural ability because they are all such good athletes. Everybody has the green light. Everybody pushes in the tempo. When you watch Buffalo run the floor, it's usually maybe one or two guys. When you see Saskatchewan run the floor, it's almost every time three guys. And that's hard to defend. Because as a forward, you have to make a quick decision. Well, am I going to run back with Billich and Cornwall and Dilks running the floor? Or am I going to try to bust my ass and get off the floor and get a D guy there and hope that everyone else is doing the same thing and we don't get scored on in transition? Because the Rush used their transition game to really tire out Buffalo as that game went on. Buffalo had their chances, you know, 
AK-66 and Jonesy and Brownell and Brock, those guys contributed, and they pushed the tempo, and they tried to do everything they could to put the ball in the net. We'll hear from Steve Dietrich a little bit later, and I'll talk to him about the transition game, and, and you'll hear him. And he'll talk about how that it was there. They just didn't take care of the ball well enough. And you you can't afford mental errors and unforced errors against a team like Saskatchewan. It'll cost you. It'll haunt you. And at the end of the day, it will be the end of your season. The goal that Jeffrey Cornwall scored in the second quarter was, you know, kind of a, an example of that. Ball gets dumped down in the corner. Curtis Knight is chasing after it. Anthony Cosmo reaches out to pick it up. Neither one could scoop up the loose ball, and the ball just hops right to Jeff Cornwall. Cosmo f- struggles to get back in. Cosmo or, or Cornwall makes two fakes. It's in the back of the net. But that's all because of the speed of the rush getting up the floor. The Bandits didn't have time to get back to thwart that. So that's one big area the Bandits are going to need to be better. Um, You can't blame their short man unit. You can't blame their power play. The chances were few and far between for both. The the face-off battle between Thompson and Thornbear was as good as advertised. But as I said last week, and I'll say it again this week, transition will be the deciding factor in this series. And in game one, the advantage went to the rush. And they come away with the victory. And so now they head back home with a one nothing lead. If you remember, last year, the rush had to go into Toronto for game one and knocked off the rock on their home floor before heading back home to take on the Rock in Game 2, and we all know what happened there. The Rush are in an absolutely perfect position. You couldn't ask for a better position than being up one love and heading home. Because, as I kind of talked about before, beating the Rush at home hasn't come easy to anybody. But beating them now at home, this late in the season, is going to be a monumental task. A one nothing lead is huge in a three-game series. Now you have the luxury of, you know, you can lose a game and still be alive. So that kind of alleviates some pressure. But all the pressure is on the Bandits. Simple. They have to come in and they have to win. There's only one task, win, at all costs. And you know that the Bandits will come out ready to go and fired up. But again, the big thing for them, they'll need to stay composed. They did a great job of that in game one. As I said, there was only five penalties called the entire game. None in the first, none in the fourth. The officiating crew of Chris Williams, Todd LeBranch, and Ian Garrison did a great job controlling the tempo of the game. They let the guys play. They understood that in a finals matchup like this, the intensity is going to be ramped up. And so they need to realize that the flow of the game will be different. 
scenarios will be different. You can't start calling every little thing because that takes away the flow of the game. So I thought the three-man crew did a great job. And now I don't know who the referees will be for the final. Most likely could very well be the same three. I don't know why you would change it. But see, now those three guys have an idea of the, the pace and the tempo and the feel of this series. And with the rush up one nothing, you know, they have to take that into account. It may sound like a weird thing, but as a referee, you have to understand, okay, one team's up one nothing, they got a chance to win. How's this game? We don't want to slow it down. We don't want to penalize teams if we don't have to. And then if the game gets late, we don't need anything going absolutely batshit crazy. I don't see that happening in this series. I think these two teams have too much respect for one another. But it will be very interesting to watch this game play out because I think, as always, you know, it's a little bit different three periods versus four quarters. You know, the old adage of, you know, the first 10 minutes of this period is huge. We've got to get them in this first 10 minutes. Well, 10 minutes is almost an entire quarter in the National Lacrosse League, so it's not that important. But starting and finishing strong will be, you know, for the rush, getting the 15-plus thousand that are going to be there in this game right away, which they will be, and feeding off that energy is going to be massive. We'll talk to Jeffrey Cornwall in a bit, and we'll ask him about the effect that the fans have on the rush and what it's like to play as a home player in front of those 15 strong. Up one nothing after a fantastic game. And now you get to play at home. Doesn't get any better than that. But for the Buffalo Bandits, they got some work to do. And according to head coach Troy Cordingly, they may not have that much work to actually do. I mean, we know we can, we can uh, still play better. I thought we were good tonight, but uh, we can play better. Uh, we just have to be more consistent, and um, you know we got to play 60, not uh, 55. So that's Bandits head coach Troy Cordingly. Uh, he stressed that actually twice in the interview post game that uh, the Bandits have to play 60, not 55 minutes. I agree with that. You got to play a full game, but you know you can have five minute lapses and still win. Um, just not in these tight games. You can maybe have a few bad shifts in a series like this. Uh, but if you go on a stretch of five minutes, that can very well cost you. Uh, let's hear now from Troy Cordingly's boss, if you will. He's had a little bit of experience as an NLL goalie in these Champions Cup final, twice with Buffalo, once with Rochester. He is the general manager of the Buffalo Bandits, longtime friend of the show, commonly known as Chugger throughout National Lacrosse League circles. He is Steve Dietrich. Chugger? How are you, friend? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Uh, no practice I'll... tonight, man. I'm on my Six Nations game. Practice morning. Wow, look at you. Giving the boys a little bit of a different look, are you? Well, we got bumped out of the ILA tonight. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Six Nations, I guess the Chiefs take precedent over the Bandits, so we practice morning. Well, I bet you if it was the Nighthawks, it'd be a different story. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Chiefs would be, be moved over to Taylor Palace. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you, you think practicing midweek or will change the guys' um, perspectives and things, or is it just a, a mental thing they'll have to get over? No, because we always practice Tuesday nights, right? So, yeah. uh, so whether it's Tuesday night, Wednesday night, I don't think it really makes a difference. Um, it, I guess it gives them a day, an extra day to stew over the weekend before yeah. we get together again, but uh, it is what it is. Yeah. And, and when do you guys head west? Uh, I think the, I don't think we could all get on the same plane. So I think some guys are leaving early Friday afternoon, and then some guys are leaving like five o'clock ish. So we should all be in there seven seven thirty at the latest, I guess. And you guys hope to have a a, a walk through Friday night, or are you guys no, going to get to the no, hotel just, and? Yeah, just shoot around. Um, they, we may do some video Friday night. I don't know, but yeah. um, with us practicing midweek world, you know, you're only allowed one practice week, right? Yeah, so yeah. with us practicing midweek and uh, shoot around the next time we can actually do something. So, so what's the message been since Saturday to the guys? Uh, you know, it was a, a, a hard-fought game, a, 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 one of the best games we've seen all year and kind of what a lot of people thought it would be, uh, a two-goal loss. And you probably don't have much to critique uh, of the guys, but what was the message afterwards? Uh, it was positive. Uh, you know, as positive as you can be of, you know, losing game one of the championship at home. Um, you know, we've been a pretty daunting team to beat at home. I think we'd lost once, and that was the back half of a, a back-to-back against Georgia. Yeah. Uh, so just to stay positive. Like, I, I thought we played well. Like, they're, they're a good, they're a good mm-hmm. team, man. Yeah. Like, they're, they're the defending champs, and, and they only got better this year. So um, they're a good team. I thought we played real well. They played well. Uh, goaltending was good both ways. I thought defensive, defensively, both teams are real good. Uh, I thought their offense was probably a little better than ours. Yeah. But um, you know, and, and they took away some of our transition and and the transition that we did have, uh, we didn't bury on some of those chances, which we need to. So um, you know, we're pretty confident. They're a good team, and, and it's going to be a rocket crowd in there on mm-hmm. on Saturday night. So um, you know, we're going to have to come ready to play. There's no doubt about that. I was going to ask you about the, uh, your guys' offense. Obviously, you'd like to see more production out of some other guys. How do you get those guys going? Because, uh, like you said, it's going to be a raucous crowd in the tune on Saturday night, and it's going to be hard. It's just as hard to play in Saskatoon as in Buffalo. So how do you get guys like Veltman and Malcolm and Steenhouse and Benny going to, to complement what Dane's doing out there? You know, I thought um, I thought our right side was real good uh, Saturday night. I thought – you know, Tony Malcolm, you know, I said this, and please don't take this the wrong way because I'm not trying to say he's the next Dane Smith because I don't think there is another Dane Smith. Yeah. But I, I said when we when Dane first came out, out with us, I don't know, what was it, three, four years ago now, um, that his if his brain uh, or, his, yeah, if his brain ever caught up to his athletic ability, that he right. would be a special player. And Malcolm's that kind of player. Like, he nice. is so fast. And he's got such tremendous skill. And if his lacrosse IQ will ever catch up to his body, because it almost looks, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost comical sometimes. Cause it's, it's almost like he's got a guy beat and he's got to stop to almost catch up to, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then just keep on going. Like, yeah. He's just got so much God-given natural ability that, um, you know, he's going to be a special player. But I thought our right side was good. I, I yeah. think our, our left side honestly has to be better. We need production over there. Uh, Benny's good. You know, if, if Benny can bring in two or three goals, we're happy with that. But we need better production over there. And, and yeah. you know, I know Daryl and I know Culper and I know Benny, they're all working hard. But, um, 
Well, it's also not easy going like, up against Rubish. Rubish yeah, is sitting over there. Somebody's getting Rubish, so it's yeah, not going to yeah. be easy. But, um, yeah, those guys need to be better. If they're better, then we have a real good shot. Absolutely. Um, you know, Johnny Tavares is, is in a new avenue for him as a coach in the finals. How do you think he's handled the adaptation and the new role behind the bench? Oh, he's been fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you never – you don't have hesitation, but – when, when we brought him on, you, you've seen star players, you know, generational talent type people go behind the bench in other sports and not have the success that, yeah. that they probably thought they would have. Uh, but he has been phenomenal. You know, I think having, having him be a teacher, I think, helps because mm-hmm. some of the guys on our offense, they need to learn visually. Some guys need to learn verbally. Some guys need to have it walked through on the floor on top of learning visually or verbally. And he can do it, and he's been fantastic. He can break things down. Some of these guys, you know, will say, well, what about this? And, and he's open to, you know, feedback. Like, he's been tremendous uh, for our offense. And, and, I, and I know that, um, you know, they have a great coaching staff there in Saskatchewan as well. But, you know, JT draws up a lot, of, a lot of good stuff for our guys. And if we follow the game plan, I think we'll be pretty successful. It was a fairly clean game in the aspect that not a lot of penalties were called. As a general manager, how did you think the referees handled game one? I thought the refereeing might have been the best I've seen all year. Yeah. Uh, and I, honestly, I'm not, I'm not the, the biggest proponent of uh, three refs on the floor. To me, if you're going to put three refs on the floor, then maybe one of them watches the benches and mm-hmm. the other two do the play. Uh, I don't like the fact Teddy, you've been around lacrosse as long as I have. I don't like the fact that you have six eyes watching yeah. something because you can technically call a foul like basketball. You can call a foul All the every time. time. Yeah, yeah. So I don't like the fact that six eyes watching a play because if, if I'm the top guy and I call something down in the corner, then that guy can get his, you know, dyer up and say, well, okay, now I'm going to watch your area. Yeah, I'm going to try yeah. to get you back. So I, I don't like it. I like two. I'm the old school guy. I like two guys on the floor. But mm-hmm. I, thought those, I thought those guys did a tremendous job. If we can somehow have two power plays and three power plays next Saturday night, I'll be very, very happy. Yeah, I like the your aspect of the six eyes versus four, or the, you know, positives of being the four guys. Because like you said, having that one guy just focus on the benches lets the other two guys just concentrate on the flow of the game. And there isn't that one upsmanship of, of oh, I got to get a call now because you did, and then another guy does that. Is that – the discussion that could be made going forward for the referee three referee system because I know that's an agenda that a lot of people have for for during the offseason. Yeah, I think they I think the league wants to go that way. Uh, no, when I say that way, I mean the three referees. Three refs, yeah. How how they're going to break it down, I don't know. I think, and I could be wrong on this one, Teddy, but I think a long time ago uh, they had three refs where the one guy at, at the penalty box watched the benches and they went away yeah. from that. Yeah, I think so I don't. I don't know if they want to go back to that. I'm just if, if three referees can work. Last Saturday was basically the blueprint of how it should work. Yeah. But um, you know, I've also been in, involved in other games where three referees, and all of a sudden you got eight and nine power plays. And yeah. It just it, it takes away from the flow of the game. It takes away from the beauty of the game, and it, it just becomes a travesty. Uh, it, it was a fantastically played game. Uh, the transition is something that I thought was always going to be a key part of that system, and we have two of the best uh, in the league at it. What's going to be for the key for you guys to get wave after wave of transition going? Because that really seemed to push Saskatchewan late in that game. 
Yeah, and, you know, I think the key for us is um, playing solid defense. Uh, you know, and I thought, you know, Troy talks about 55 minutes. I thought we played real well uh, the whole game. Uh, I thought we had three breakdowns late. And the thing with Saskatchewan, and, I, you know, I talk to Mouse about it all the time, is with them there's no freebies. Like, if you have a breakdown, they're getting a chance. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's not going to be a bad pass or the guy's not going to catch it. There's no freebies. And that's what happened with the ninth goal and the tenth goal. We just had breakdowns, and they both ended up in the back of our net. So yeah. the key for us is to play hard, play solid defense, create some turnovers, and then get going. And, and I think – you know, Keto and, and Jonesy had some great chances, had some good looks. We just didn't we didn't get the net. So I think when we get out in transition, the guys that get the transition have to bury those chances because usually if, if we can get some transition goals, it gives not only cost confidence, our defense confidence, takes a little bit of heat off our offense. You know, because five on five against that team, uh, if we just prayed and trade five on five chances, uh, they're real good. So we, we need to uh, we need to get out there and, and score some odd man goals to give us a better chance. You guys out loose balled them by 18, but it didn't result in more scoring opportunities. What do you have to do to make those, uh, you know, the plus minus and that pay off at the end? Well, I think a lot of it was um, we would pick up some loose balls and hell, we'd miss the net in transition. So it goes yeah. back to we got to hit the net and we got to get some more secondary chances. I think a couple times we got resets off of, um, you know, maybe some bad shots that we took late in 30 second clocks. So we just have to bury our chances. Like when, when we out loose ball them and at least the transition, we have to bury the chances because we can't, like I said, we can't play them as much five on five as maybe they want to play because they're real good at it. So we we got to we got to get out in the break and we got to bury our chances. And and not only Jonesy and Keto, but Brownell and Brocky and guys like mm-hmm. that pre have to score on their chances. It's going to be, we kind of talked about it, the atmosphere in Saskatoon is nothing like I've really ever seen. But Did it surprise you that you guys had under 13 at the game on Saturday night? Um, or is yes that just no. an aspect of game of it being a game one? I think, it, well, I think it's an, that's, that's a big one. It's game one, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, if I'm going to send my money, I'll spend it um, mm-hmm. you know, when the actual championship is going to be yeah. handed out. Yeah. Uh, but it's also it's a one-week sell, which has always been tough for our league. Uh, we're into late May, early June, which is tough for our league. And mm-hmm. it was Memorial Day weekend in the U.S., which is an, another hurdle. So, you know, it, it's not excuses. What, would yeah. I like to have more? Yeah, sure I would. But, you know, the, I look at it, the, the people that were in there are the core bandit fans, and it was Absolutely. loud and it was exciting. And, and, you know, those are the people we want to win it for anyway. So yeah. uh, we're looking forward, you know, we're looking forward to uh, going to Saskatchewan. We were there earlier in the year. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a great game, and it was a great environment. And, you know, from talking to most, he said it's just gotten better, the environment. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. And, and, you know what, we need – this league needs more success stories like that. And, yeah, for sure. You know, it, it, it's great that we can get into a market that's that's been as successful as it is. But it's also nice uh, when you're a new market to have, have a championship caliber team dropped in your lap too. So that's yeah. that's always nice that most expansion cities don't uh, get blundered. Uh, we probably won't see another 1918 thriller, but we very well could because these two teams have that ability. But what's it going to take for you guys to bring this back to to Banditland and force Game Three? Um, I you know what I think somebody's got to step up and do something that, that we haven't done. And when I say that, I don't mean cause. 
or excuse me, I don't mean Dane. I don't think I don't think we can expect Dane to go get six, but we need some of these other guys to step up and, and score. The guys that haven't, uh, I think we need to get you know four, five, six goals in transition, mm-hmm. and I think we need Cause to to be the backbone that he's been for us all year. And if if those things come to fruition, we have a real good chance. Um, but you know, it's daunting. They're a good, they're a good team. It's it's yeah. not like we're we're not playing uh, you know the defending champ. So we're we're excited about the opportunity, but uh, we know there's a lot of work uh, a lot of work ahead of us. You are a busy man, my friend. I will let you enjoy the night, and I appreciate you giving us some time. Safe travels. Best of luck Saturday night, and uh, here's hoping for a great game three. Sounds good, Teddy. Always a pleasure talking to you. General Manager Steve Dietrich joining us here on the Off the Crossbar podcast. And, you know, you heard him talk about the transition. You heard him talk about how well his defense is playing, how he needs a little more pr- production out of his left side offense. Those are little things that you can fix. It's not like he got his team got blown out of the water. They lost by a pair. They out loose balled him. Shots were pretty even. Face offs were pretty even. Everything about that game was pretty even. And they just need to be better on a couple different instances. Get a few bounces to go their way. And this game, this series is heading back to Buffalo. I don't know if it will. I'd like to see it. Who doesn't love, like, Game 7 the other night? Warriors and Thunder. Like, everybody loved it, right? Everybody loves a final game. No matter what. Just amps everything out. And I I just but I just don't know. I, I just don't know if Buffalo can go into Saskatoon and beat the rush. I still haven't decided. Um, I was obviously wrong in my game one prediction. Um, so I'd probably be wrong in my game two prediction. But my game three prediction, that still lives on. Um, my game three prediction was that the game was going to be so good, the whole world implodes. Be kind of cool. A crazy little um, factoid, I guess. When Buffalo was winning cups back in the early 90s, so was Derek Keenan, so was Troy Cordingly. Kind of cool. Steve Dietrich was on the opposition. He was a Baltimore Thunder member. But Jammer and Bingo, Keenan, accordingly, were teammates with the Buffalo Bandits in the 1993 season when the Bandits went 8-0 and swept through the playoffs and ruled the the world back in the old M-I-L-L days playing for the... um, Long forgotten North American Cup, which was a pretty slick looking trophy. It was about like eight feet tall, silver, looked pretty cool. So did the spandex. Um, But they were teammates, and now they are going at it here in the Champions Cup final. Um, Jeffrey Cornwall, Chris Corbeil used to be members of the Buffalo Bandits. Jeremy Thompson used to be a member of the Rush. There are a lot of little interesting storylines woven in and out 
of this series. Cosmo playing in his first Champions Cup game as a starter. Chad Culp getting there for the very first time in his career. The Rush having pretty much everybody on the roster ha- had played last year in the Cup. Um, Curtis Knight was injured. Dan Taylor was a rookie. And I think Billich was a scratch that game. The Bandits, on the other hand, only had like four guys on their whole roster who had played in a Champions Cup game before. But here's a really kind of interesting, nuanced storyline. Derek Keenan has had some success as a head coach and as an assistant coach in the National Cross League. He obviously helped coach the Rush last year. He was a member of Les Bartley's coaching staff uh, in the late 90s, 1999, when The Rock won, uh, Keenan and Como were his assistant coaches. Keenan now with The Rush, Como now with The Swarm. But then Keenan would kind of pull a LeBron and take his talents to Newport Beach. Different beach, but Newport. On the West Coast, a little bit shy of Anaheim, where he coached the Storm for a year. Proved them from a 1-15 team. Proud to say I was on that club already. Claim to fame. Back-to-back 1-15 teams on my resume. Uh, back to Keenan because a lot more success than I have had. Uh, so Keenan goes from being a rock guy to heading out east, or sorry, heading west and helping coach the Anaheim Storm from 1-15 to 5-10. And, and then... The Stormfold. Sorry, they were 5-11. and 11. The Stormfold, due to low attendance, Keenan gets picked up by the expansion Portland Lumberjacks for the 2006 season, and they became the first expansion team to lead their division, but unfortunately, they wouldn't get to the finals. Two years later, they would get to the finals, where, and this is a long, convoluted story finally getting to where my point was, Keenan coached the Jacks against the Bandits in the finals. And now, here he is again, coaching the Rush against the Bandits in the finals. Uh, Back then, it was just a one-gamer. But, in essence, he just has one game to win, and he will, again, be able to hoist the champion's Cup trophy. And I'm sure my next guest would love to be able to do that alongside of him. He is one of the best two-way defensive first players in all of lacrosse right now. He's been my guy since 2010. Just ask Brad Challoner. He is Jeff Cornwall. He joins us now on the Off the Crossbar podcast. Jeff, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. How's things? Uh, you know, not bad. <laughs> Just living the day-to-day life between championship games, are you? Something like that. Something like that. Well, what keeps you busy Monday to Friday? Uh, I'm teaching as a substitute teacher in Coquitlam. Nice. How's that going for you? Uh, it's been fun so far. I mean, like, you meet a lot of uh, a lot of neat kids. It's weird because like, I've coaching the community for so long. A lot of them mm-hmm. will call me, like, Jeff or Coach. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, uh, Mr. Cornwall today. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I just don't uh, want all the other kids calling you that. So. Yeah, of course. Uh, what <laughs> grades are you teaching? 
Uh, mostly high school, but I te- like I've TOC'd for like Darren Fridge and stuff oh, nice. uh, in elementary and whatnot. So yeah. I've been around. Are you mostly working uh, at Charles Best in Coquitlam? Is that where that is? Uh, I've only had one call for Charles Best actually. Oh really? Crazy. Yeah, I've been mostly at like Heritage and uh, yeah. Riverside and stuff. And obviously, you know, everyone knows the the troubles a lot of people have with their Monday to Friday jobs and and getting time off work. Your your school's been okay with giving you the time and and the ability to go away for games. Well, yeah, that's the like the reason why I'm still TOCing is because I need to take most Fridays off. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So I can't take a contract, so it's just been it's a little more flexible, but yeah, uh, it's kind of coming not having my own class at the same time. Of course, is is that obviously something that's in the works though? Hopefully down the road. Uh, somewhere down the road. I mean, as long as I'm playing pro lacrosse, it's going to be hard to move, like, yeah. hard to get a contract with, like, not having Friday availability. Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see how that one goes down the line, but for now, I'm pretty happy with how it is. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Uh, obviously, the sole focus now is game two, but, uh, what were your thoughts after a, a very intense game one? Uh, honestly, I think that, like, the biggest thing with that game, and after rewatching it a couple times, yeah. was that, like, that game was close the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And, like, we got bailed out a couple times from our goaltender. Like, he saved our asses on a few defensive breakdowns. Yeah. Um, and, like, both teams are playing, like, an incredibly high level of lacrosse. Yeah. So, yeah. it's, like, it's, it's going to be, like, th- that last game was super exciting, like, really tight. And I remember one of the interview questions I was asked, like, in, like, an online interview was, like, when did you feel like you had the game locked up? And I was, like, man, <laughs> Never. Like, we were sitting on the edge of our seat. Like, everyone was pretty pumped up the whole game. And, yeah. Like, I don't think we ever felt the game was locked up until we heard the final buzzer ring. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, like, one of the craziest experiences I've had in the sport. Like, um, even, like, last year, I think, in game one last year, uh, I think we did. We had like a really strong showing in game one. Mm-hmm. I think game two was really tight. And then this year, it's like game one is like probably the most back and forth game I've ever played in. Yeah. So I can only imagine what game two is going to be like. You know, the you guys have only, only played twice, once in the regular season. Everybody remembers that game. But compare game one to that nineteen eighteen thriller. Uh, is it very similar? Um, it's similar in some regards. I mean. Like the biggest, like the biggest change was that both goalies at like played on, like just stood on their heads in that last mm-hmm. game. Uh, like uh, Boldy and Cosmo were making like some huge saves. Uh, both teams were getting tons of shots, just like the first game. And um, like the execution on both teams, like offenses, like we were getting solid looks on, on yeah. the inside, and um, like they were shutting the door on us a handful of times. And like, but we still like buying into that process and continuing to work hard to get to the middle is what ended up like getting us over the top at the end. So uh, that little bit of buy-in has been huge for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's like, we have to stick to those little game plan instances to move forward, especially in, against a strong team like Buffalo. In game one, it was Mitch Jones and his five goals and transition. That was sort of the dagger in game one. You guys use your transition game to really push the tempo especially late in that fourth quarter how important is it for you as a transition guy to get your wheels going early so that you're ready for those light runs in the fourth um to be honest i mean like my focus uh like on the floor especially now is to play the best defense i can play and to shut down their scoring threats as best as i can or to limit them as much as possible Mm -hmm. um in transition i mean transition is all about opportunities and making the most of them 
So in the case that we get a good bounce or I'm the high guy on the far side of the floor, then yeah. I'm going to run every time and see what show, like what comes up. But my first and like my first thought is always locking it down on the defensive end because yeah. if you can if you can shut a team's offense down, then you're that's half of their game. So like that that's our biggest focus. And with everyone playing their role on our team um, and recognizing like that our first priority, especially on our defensive end, like our first priority is to get the ball to our offense and have yeah. our offense grind them down five on five. Yeah. Um, and when we're doing that, we're very successful. So. Uh, my like my job out there and all of our jobs out there on the defensive end is to get the ball back for our O so they can do their magic. Doesn't hurt when you're contributing offensively though. You had an absolute career year. You only had I think three points last year, and this year you broke out for 14. Uh, what's been the difference in your game in you know one one calendar year? You think? Uh, well, from that perspective, it's probably been the fact that I've been living at home and spending a couple hours in the box every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, helps. <laughs> yeah, last year I lived out in Edmonton. I didn't exactly have the same, uh, well, I lived two blocks away from, like, a local lacrosse box here. Yeah, like, at home. Yeah. And in Edmonton, it wasn't exactly possible to go <laughs> to an outdoor lacrosse box yeah. in negative 20, negative 40 weather. So that was a huge change for me. Um, and then... It, it's been really nice. Like I'm coaching the lacrosse team with my brother and like a couple of my colleagues as well. Yeah. Uh, so I always like, I have a stick in my hand every day throughout the week. Awesome. And that little bit um, has really helped me like uh, stay focused on like the little things I need to improve in my game. Yeah. Especially the coaching part of it. Cause I come down on the kids pretty hard. So yeah. <laughs> like, and I'm like, if I'm calling these kids out on like what they're doing wrong, then I need to like do yeah, it to myself. Absolutely. Yeah. So th- that little bit has actually helped uh, tremendously, and I think that just re- like just playing confidently and recognizing that you know like not being afraid to shoot is a big one because mm-hmm. I was a little bit afraid to shoot at some point last year. And yeah. Every now and then you just gotta let the ball fly and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in Saskatoon for Game Two of the West Finals, and I was watching you guys warm up, and you guys do the old, you know. Uh, static or the old uh, dynamic stretch basketball game. Uh, who's the best at it? Oh, the best at the dynamic stretch thing? No, of uh, oh, the, oh, oh, shooting hoops shot they... over the back. Oh man, <laughs> uh, the best at it. Okay, um, the best at it. That's tough. The boys are gonna like. Uh, I can't give like an. I can give like a top three. I can give a top three. Okay, I want top three, bottom three. Top three, bottom three? I want top three, bottom three. We're not going to signal right. anybody out, but Ooh. top three, bottom three. Top three, bottom three. All right. Top three would be uh, Robert Church. Yeah. The guy can't miss. He's fire yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, and then John Lafontaine. He's got the height. He's got some, yeah, he's, he's got some pretty money shots. Yeah. Uh, and then other than that, I'd probably have to throw it out to my boy John Mintz as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been like they all play in the same area. Yeah. Like I don't shoot on the net because like that's part of my like focus. I got yeah, yeah, focus. But yeah, yeah. I, I watch him every now and then. I'll give him a <laughs> high five when they hit it. Um, yeah. And then bottom three, uh, I gotta throw Doucet under the bus on this one for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going that one. Oh, he's like <laughs> he threw a shot up that went like somewhere into the corner, and he's like, oh well, <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen type deal. Yeah. So that was uh interesting. <laughs> but uh, Rubes isn't really a bottom three guy, but he had a bad week last. Like last week, he wasn't on. Yeah. 
Like, he's not a bottom three in that, but he wasn't on last week. He was bottom week, three so, last week, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I think he's gonna he's really going to step his game up on, like, shooting the ball at the crossbar in our warm-up. Yeah. Like, I think he played pretty tremendously in the actual lacrosse game, but the warm-up stuff, he could really pick it up. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the goal? Is it to land it just past the line, crossbar and in? Do you guys have a point system, or do they have a point system? It, it's just about, like, just off the hop. It. It's yeah. just about hit, hitting the crossbar. Yeah. So, like, if you hit a post, it's, like, honorable mention, but it's not quite what you're looking for. It has to go off the crossbar. Awesome. I love it. Um, with your time in Edmonton, uh, you've obviously seen the two dynamics of, of being in a market that was supportive of the rush but not in full droves, and now you go to Saskatoon where the whole city has bought in. What do you think, uh, from your perspective, has been the biggest difference between the two cities? Um, well, like from the point, like I showed up in Edmonton, I think six years into, into their campaign there. Yeah. So that would, that would have been my first year there. And, uh, from what I understood, like the, the fans that we had there were diehards. Like the people yeah. that came to our games were like, they've been fans since the start and they're, they were always going to be our fans. And in fact, yeah. a lot of them are still our fans now that we've moved. Absolutely. And now that we've moved to Saskatoon, it's like every one of the people, like everyone at our games is that same diehard, except yeah. there's way more of them. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, it, it's, it's almost overwhelming when like you show up at it, like after games when we do autograph signings and like, I see like fans wearing my Jersey of all people. Yeah. I'm like, where did you get my Jersey? And like, oh, I had it made. <laughs> I had it made. Yeah, I had it. And I was like, you had it made. Like, why yeah. did you do that? And they're like, oh, you're my favorite player. I'm like, seriously? Like, that's, that's so cool. Like, I never expected to hear something like that. So, yeah, yeah it's a, it's definitely a little bit of a different environment. It's it's like a same feel type thing, but it's, yeah. like, amplified by, like, tenfold. I was in the press box uh, calling the game with Fraser on Saturday night, last Saturday. And the in Saskatoon, the, that press box shakes just because it's so loud and everybody's so into it. What's the feeling like down on the floor? And I know as players, we don't hear it a lot. We don't hear the music. We can zone a lot of that stuff out. But for you, what's it like when you have 15-plus cheering you on in Saskatoon? Uh, I have, like, a pretty distinct memory of, like, an instance where I kind of realized, like, the electricity in the building. Yeah. And it was after – there was a play – I think we were playing Toronto. And I took, like, an elbow in the head. And I was like, I wasn't feeling the greatest. I was like, oh, like, I don't know if I'm like, I might just sit it out. Like, mm-hmm. just not feeling too great. And I sat on the bench for like a minute or so, just trying to collect myself. And one of our players scored a goal. And I like looked up at the stands and people were just losing their minds. Yeah. And like, it was so, so insanely loud. Like everyone was just like way over the top, like about this goal that we scored. And I think we had the game locked up at that point. Yeah. And there was maybe four or five minutes left. And I was like, how do I, how could I not go back on the field? Like, this? <laughs> yeah. like yeah. this is because I might never experience this again. Mm. Like I've never been in a place where like the crowd is that electric and like yeah. that they're behind you. Like when you go to Colorado, sometimes like it can be pretty loud there, but yeah. they're not cheering for you. They're usually cheering. Well, unless you play for Colorado, of course. Yeah, of course yeah. Um, but they're not cheering for you. They're cheering against mm. you. Like just like in Buffalo, they're cheering against you. But when they're cheering for you like that, it's, like there's nothing more motivating than hearing people having you back. So that was, that was like the, that's when it kind of kicked in that like, wow, these people are like, they, they want us here as badly as we want to be here. Um, 
you had the the luxury of being drafted by Buffalo in your first year, and you spent five games there. Uh, what do you remember about your time there in Buffalo? Uh, in Buffalo, it was kind of interesting there, actually. I mean, uh, when I was drafted there, I only made, I think, like three of the six or seven training camps because I was in school. Yeah. So I had exams during the times that they had their training camps. And when I made the team, I was actually really surprised because I was like, oh, I didn't make too many training camps. Like, I was like, oh, uh, like I made the team. That was like the craziest news I got. That was my Christmas present, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and when I showed up in Buffalo, it was um, like I got there the next, like the weekend before our first game. And they had like all these, like all these like things for me, like uh, it was tracksuit and like a couple different warm-up shirts, like all sorts. Yeah. I probably still have more stuff from Buffalo than I do from, <laughs> yeah. like from Edmonton, from the time yeah. I was in Edmonton, because like they they had some pretty awesome swag. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like talking to I think I believe the coach was Darius at the time. Yeah, it was Darius. And, yeah. And he he like painted a picture of like what kind of player he wanted me to be. Yeah. And he's like, it was basically like I want you to be like a Billy D, but like like run like super like. Like, but a little bit more transition, but a little bit less, like, less, like, solid on defense. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like, I can kind of see that. I, I can't see myself being, like, as mean or as tough as Billy. <laughs> not like, many people he, can. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not quite at that level. Like, yeah. <laughs> but um, I was like, yeah, like, I think I might be able to pull that off. And uh, so, like, playing there, I think I had my first game, uh, I, like, first NLL game, I played a little bit too hard, I think. Yeah because um, I got very tired, mm. and that was the biggest thing I noticed. Like, I played full intensity the whole time, never took any breaks, and by, like, halftime, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk after this right. Yeah. So um, I kind of, like, very quick uh, very quick job refocusing and, like, trying to learn how to pace myself and be a part of the league effectively. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we had, like, a doubleheader, and I felt really good about how I was playing there. And when I got traded, I actually found out uh, I got a phone call from the uh, uh, from one of the ladies that works for the Rush from Myrna, and yeah. she called me and she's like, um, "Hi Jeff, like when can you fly out to Minnesota next weekend?" <laughs> and I was like, uh, "Who is this?" <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, this is Myrna from the Rush." I'm like, "So why are you calling me?" And she's like, <laughs> "Yeah," and, and she's like, "Um." Oh, you, uh, you, you've been traded. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, hold on a second. And then, like on my other line, I was getting a call from the GM uh, from Buffalo. Yeah. And I was like, I gotta take this other call. And then he like <laughs> let me know what was going on. I'm like, oh, okay. Like I just wow. had no idea. Like I got the lady on the other line. It it was a uh, a bit of a shock. Like, <laughs> a little bit of a shock. Like I was cool with it. I, um. I mean, I think I they traded two second rounders for me, and I yeah. was picked like fifteenth or something. Yeah. So I was like, wow, like I guess I technically doubled in value. Like, I must be playing okay. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, it was kind of neat to do that. And then I saw a couple familiar faces on Edmonton's team at the time, so that was yeah, of course nice to know a few guys on that team at least, or at least know of them. Yeah. So that um, was kind of, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Before that, you go. Um... Robert Church said this to me earlier in the year when I talked to me. He said, one of the great things about the Rush uh, is not only the brotherhood connection that you guys have and the closeness that you guys are, but it's a lot of Whitby Coquitlam guys. And that dynamic of your time in junior has really helped this team come together. Do you see that? 
definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, one of like, there's two things that I really, that this team like really, um, showcases in the players that they have, like their personnel. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the fact that a lot of us, almost every one of us have played together, um, throughout our childhoods. Yeah. So like, there's like groups of guys, like I played with Benny Church, Marty, like, like all those guys for as long as like minor. Yeah. 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 So, and like, I, I've won a Minto cup with like seven or eight of the guys on the team. Yeah. Um, so there's like, there's a lot of carryover from that, which is always nice to play with people that you have a lot of chemistry with. Yeah. And there's Sorge and Matthews and and Curtis Knight, the other going the other way from Whitby along with Keen and and Bubba, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's nice to have those groups together. And like the other really big thing is a lot of the people on our, on our team have won some pretty big things. Yeah. Like, um, from Mintos to Man Cups to Champions Cups to like uh, World Championships mm-hmm. like for Team Canada, a lot of us have had that had that experience winning. And um, even though we're a younger team, um, like I think that one of the biggest things that we bring into these really big games is that we we do have experience in them. So when it comes down to like the, the little the, like the little games within the game, yeah. um, we might have we might have some sort of an edge just because we know what it took before. And mm-hmm. if we're able to replicate that, then it might just put us over the top a little bit. Well, my friend, one more, and you guys will be on top of the world once again. Uh, it's been a pleasure catching up with you as always. Um, good luck this weekend, and who knows, maybe come Saturday night, you'll be a two-time NLL champion. Well, we can only hope. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate the time, buddy. Take care, Teddy. There is Jeff Cornwall of the Edmonton Rush, as I mentioned earlier, my guy. Since 2010, when I first saw him play as a junior Adenac. 14 points this year, 6 goals, 8 assists. Last year, just a goal and an assist in the regular season. He matched his regular season total in the playoffs with 2 goals. The year before that, he had 13 points, 7 goals, and 6 assists. But this year, he's just been that much better. Uh, Consistently all over the floor. And as mentioned, 14 points. In the regular season, he's got three points already in these playoffs. He's just one of those guys that brings his hard hat to work in the shape of an afro and gets the job done. Um, He just continually works and works and works, and it is paying off for him in the long run. And what about the story of how he found out about the trade? with the Rush travel agent calling him even before he was told by the bandits that they had traded him. That's a great trade story. That's just great. Uh, So thanks to Jeff for stopping by. Um, I've had him on the show before. Him and his brother are just salt-of-the-earth kids, uh, and they do a lot of stuff for lacrosse in the lower mainland coaching, and you never know. Uh, their stories have yet to be told fully, and it wouldn't surprise me if they are uh, longtime coaches on the Lower Mainland, and who knows, even pro coaches one day, because they both have uh, great winning pedigrees and, and great attitudes and great mindset, and it's just great to see uh, a guy like Jeff Cornwall having the success that he so well deserves. Another kid that is going to be having a lot of attention drawn his way. Had a pretty big weekend down in Philadelphia. 
Kelly now to Cloutier. Kelly's going to step into it. No. Skip pass to Cloutier. It's over. That was the winning goal as Kitchener, Ontario's Chris Cloutier put a cap on what will go down as one of the greatest single NCAA lacrosse performances of all time. That goal in overtime gave the Tar Heels their first trophy since 91, I believe. It allowed the Tar Heels to lift both men's and women's championship trophies on the weekend. Ironically enough, both Tar Heels teams beat Maryland in the finals. But Cloutier would finish with 19 goals in four games. He had three in the opening round, two in the second round, nine goals in the semifinals against Loyola, and then five in the finals against Maryland, including the overtime winner. He's just a sophomore. He has two more years in the NCAA left. He won't be drafted until the 2018 NLL draft, and he's already put a lock on the first pick. It might change over the few years, but he's penciled his name in. But for all of us north of the border that were able to watch that game, and for everybody south of the border that got to watch that game, one thing really kind of stood out to me, and it was so many things. You know, when you watch the games that you see players box awareness, their patience, their ability to work in confined spaces. That's great. That's what everyone says box players do so well. They can catch in traffic. They can shoot the lights out. And they just understand the offensive mindset a little bit more. But this is now the second NCAA tournament in a row where a Canadian has been in the spotlight. Last year it was Berg. This year it's Cloutier. It could be Cloutier again next year. It could be any number of the hundreds-plus-odd Canadians that are now playing Division I lacrosse. Any number of the half-hundred, half-hundred, fifty or so-plus guys that are playing D2. The number of guys that are playing D3. JUCOs, MCLA, Canadians are infiltrating the NCAA ranks and we are putting the world on notice that we're not just box players. We can have success in the bigger field game. We can be heavily recruited. We can be the talk of the town. And Chris Cloutier had the internet buzzing all weekend. I had completely forgotten about the spelling bee. All my focus was on Final Four weekend when I wasn't watching game one. But to watch Cloutier play and to watch the Tar Heels celebration and Coach Bresci and the dab and everything that that group has been through, just an incredible, incredible honor to be able to lift a trophy. But to do it on that stage, do it with all your brothers, do it with your family, do it for Coach Bresci, and know you still got two years left? Like, this isn't the NBA. 
Guys aren't declaring early to go play National Lacrosse League. I think that's one of the coolest things about lacrosse. Guys don't declare early and leave school to go play pro. And in the end, as we've seen with Berg and Stats and Hossack and Mark Matthews, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on, put your four years of college in. Collagen? Not that kind of collagen. College in. And when you when you're done, you've already played those four years. You become a impeccable student athlete. You understand dedication and putting the work in to be the best athletes you can. But at the same time, during the summer, you're probably gonna go back home and play Canadian summer ball against men. And so that by the time you get to the NLL, you are pro game ready, you're mentally ready, physically ready, and then you can step on the stage and put on a performance like Randy Stats did, like Wes Berg did, like Ben McIntosh did last year, Mark Matthews before that, Brody Merrill long before that. If I can say this once, I can say it a hundred times. If you are a Canadian lacrosse player, start playing field lacrosse. Get a scholarship. Go down south. Spend your time there. Enjoy those years and those memories and those relationships and the foundation that you will build to be to better yourself. Not just as a student, not just to get a job, but an all-around human being mentally physically um, sports business career all of it all of it's encompassed so I dissected from or digressed from an incredible weekend in performance by Chris Cloutier which will go down in the record books but it morphed into another talk of how important NCAA is for the development of our young athletes. You're still going to be able to come home and play summer ball. You get a different mental upbringing playing sports in the NCAA. So if you can, look into it. Call coaches. Go on recruiting trips. Send an email. Call your buddy who's at one of the schools. Call me. I'll make a call for you. There's lots of options out there. Explore them. Because I've talked to a lot of guys, and I said, hey, man, did you ever want to go to college? Yeah, you know, I really would have loved to, but ah, it wasn't for me. And it's, that's fine. It's not for everybody. It can be intimidating, especially if you go to, like, the really, 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 really big schools. Like, I went to Mercier's. It's, there was less than 4,000 people on my, at my school. I could walk from one side of campus to the other in seven minutes. I was the master of snoozing and making it to class on time. But then we would go to, you know, Ohio State, and it takes you, like, 45 minutes to an hour to walk across campus, and it's... Like a whole city with 30 plus thousand people attending. And sometimes you're not even a name, you're like, you're a number. So that's not for everybody. So you got to find the right, right fit for you.
Some guys want to go to big D1 schools. But now, there are D1 programs that aren't in these massive, huge schools. I think that's why a lot of people are really liking going to, you know, RMU and Stony Brook uh, because, you know, they're not massive cities. They're just small, quaint colleges in big cities. So, uh, congratulations to Chris Cloutier and the entire Tar Heels and Coach Bresci. Uh, there's some great celebration videos out there. If you can, go check them out. Uh, there's highlights of the games. It was it was a fantastic game. It was a fantastic weekend. Um, everybody that was at the Final Four always has a great time, and it was just another incredible weekend. Uh, shout out to Mike Messenger and Vinny Ricci uh, on the Limestone Saints team, the D2 club. Uh, had a 21-0 record going in, but unfortunately fell to the Dolphins of LeMoyne in the D2 final game. Uh, Messenger was named D2 Player of the Year again, Midfielder of the Year. Like The guy's just a stud. Uh, probably one of the top picks in the National Lacrosse League draft. So there's lots going on outside of the NLL world, and the NCAA is wrapped up, so a lot of those guys will slowly start dispersing. But it's always something to keep an eye on. Go ahead and tell everybody. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. I believe every Ben McIntosh may have only scored twice in game one of the NLL Champions Cup final, but they were both very big goals. The first one came with two minutes and ten seconds or so remaining in the third quarter where he took, he took a great feed from Zach Greer, and everybody thought he was going to shoot it, caught the pass, pivoted, and dunked a ball over top of the shoulder of Anthony Cosmo to tie things up going into the fourth. Ryan Benesh would give Buffalo the lead only to have Robert Church tie things up less than a minute later, and then the teams would go five minutes plus without scoring a goal, leading us to Ben McIntosh's game winner. Game that saw the rush take a 3-0 lead. In the first half, McIntosh scores! And the Rush take the lead 10-9. You just gotta keep your eye on number 90. Ben McIntosh, the recipient of a great feed from Jared Davis, but there's a screen where McIntosh, who's inside, Priolo gets screened off. McIntosh just slips into the middle. There's nobody there. He goes, high cheese. That's number two on the evening for McIntosh. That goal for McIntosh, his second of the night was off of a set play. It may not have been the exact look they were going for, but it worked out perfectly. McIntosh took the feed from Davis. He was wide open, took his time, slotted it past Cosmo, and the rush never looked back. Ben McIntosh does all the little things. He doesn't get enough of the credit because he's playing behind guys like Greer and Matthews and Church. But since winning Rookie of the Year last year, McIntosh hasn't missed a beat. He's been good early, he's been good late, and he was all kinds of good in Game 1. And for scoring two goals in the second half, including the game winner, Ben McIntosh is the man. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am. Ben McIntosh is this week's Man of the Week. I probably could have given it to Chris Cloutier, but we were kind of keeping a theme until the NLL season is over that NLL guys get it. But we're almost done with that. Almost done. 
Sunday night is generally reserved for watching cartoons, Game of Thrones, family dinners. But on the mainland, that means WLA Lacrosse at the Cave in Maple Ridge. And especially for Island guys, it's always a long trip on a Sunday. Nobody ever wants to make that trip, but we do. I'm pretty sure mainland guys will say nobody ever wants to make the trip to the mainland or to the island, but they do. It's what we do. But the atmosphere in Maple Ridge is always a little different. Uh, the lighting is different. Uh, the arena is a lot smaller than most of the other arenas in the WLA. And Maple Ridge plays a very different game there. As a lot of teams will play a different game on their home floor. But Maple Ridge uses it to their advantage. And they do it quite well. Sunday against the Burnaby Lakers, it was uh, a regular Sunday night. Nothing untoward going on. Just two teams battling it out in the early days of the WLA season. If you only caught the end of the game, what you would have seen was Maple Ridge scored late in overtime and then they scored one more in an into an empty net off of a botched six-on-five play by the Lakers, and that pretty much sealed it. Bernie would go and try to score one more goal, uh, but after a loose ball and Colton Porter trying to call timeout, the referees didn't see it. Uh, a little melee broke out. It wasn't a brawl. wasn't anything other than couple guys going at it. Daniel Amesbury, um, who many people see as um, villain number one, ends up grabbing Peter McFetridge and puts a pretty good, puts a few good swings on him. Didn't beat him up. Didn't pummel him. Just put some good punches on him. McFetridge did a good job of avoiding a lot, but Amesbury was the true agitator. As that fight is going on, and Ainsbury hasn't really sort of let up. Other guys start to jump in. Jesse Fair jumps in. Kevin Reed jumps in. Jason Jones is involved. Like, it starts to become a bit of a scrum. And then McFetridge and Ainsbury kind of spread away from the scrum, and Ainsbury starts going at beers, or sorry, goes at McFetridge again, to which at that point, you hear the announcer say, oh, here they come off the bench. And the first person you actually see is Frankie Shiliano. And he's going right towards where McFetridge and Amesbury are. But then all of a sudden, here comes Matt Beers. Right off the, Bur uh, the Burnaby bench. Quickly behind him off the Burrard's bench is Dane Michaud. And Beers was just trying to get in there to stop Amesbury from laying a true pummeling on McFetridge. Now here's kind of where it gets chaotic and weird. Jason Jones starts losing his mind. I don't, again, I don't know fully what happened, what's said. Jones just loses his mind. He's trying to get at Kevin Reed. And for all those people who are saying, oh, Kevin Reed's just a bum, and this is typical him, he didn't really have much to do with this. And further to that point, he's actually cleaned up his game in the past few years. He's not the Kevin Reed from 2005 that I was playing against. Nobody liked him. He was just a, it, again, this is, 
He wasn't the nicest of players to play against. Let's just say that. He didn't have a good reputation. He was seen as dirty and cheap. But he played the game on the edge. And he played it well. Like, Kevin Reed played his role really well. But over the last few years, he's had to adapt his game because he can't play that way all the time. He's now on pretty much every face-off for the Berards, battling for loose balls. And he's become a pretty good loose ball guy. He plays in key moments for Rob Williams. And, I, again, I don't know why Jason Jones was so adamant at getting at Reed, but Jones was losing his mind. When they finally got players into the penalty box, Jones was trying to get out of the penalty box to get at Reed. The refs decide to run the final 15 seconds off the clock, and the game ends. So the Brards come off their bench. Jason Jones decides to launch a water bottle from the penalty box at the Brards on the floor. That's not going to go over well. And eventually, eventually, they get everybody settled. It's all finalized. They send the two teams to their dressing rooms. They send the guys from the penalty box to their dressing rooms. And everything seems to be okay. Safrick and Jared uh, and Colton Porter are on the floor talking with the officials, trying to figure out what's going to happen, who saw what, who was first. The blame game, right? Pointing fingers. They were on the floor talking with the officials for like 10 minutes after the game ended. Now, two things. Ernie Truant, the commissioner of the WLA, will obviously be looking at this and have to hand some things out. There'll probably be some suspensions. Amesbury got an instigator, a match, another match, uh, an excessive majors game misconduct. Jason Jones got an excessive major game misconduct. Uh, Jesse Fair was third man in. But the crazy thing is, there's no mention of Beers or Michaud on the score sheet for penalties. And they were the first two guys off the bench. Actually, the only two guys to come off the bench. So it'll be interesting to see what Commissioner Truett does. I'm also scratching my head why nothing was noted on there, unless there's another game sheet that just gets submitted. But you would have thought that they would have gotten a game misconduct for leaving the bench. Not on there. So that could work in their favor. Jones will probably get something for chucking a water bottle. Um, I don't think they really do anything to either coaches because the coaches did a good job in actually handling their benches. Sato didn't send anybody out after anybody. It's not his MO. Ainsbury was just acting on his own accord. But this is the third thing, and this is what I think a lot of people miss. And I missed it because... I didn't really. I didn't start watching the game until it was over or till overtime. And Rob Williams brought this up to me, and he said, "How come people are so you know angry with us? Didn't anybody see the hit beers laid on Creighton Reed?" I said, "Actually, no, I haven't seen it." So I went back and watched. And midway through the third period. The Berards tie it at four on a Mike Mallory goal. Creighton Reed picks up an assist. And what happens is Reed runs the floor in transition, makes one pass, and then the ball's coming back to him. 
and I think he tries to like quick stick and it goes off his stick, and then Mallory puts it in the net. After the pass from Reed to Mallory, Matt Beers has made a beeline for him, and it's a split second from after the pass happens to when Beers makes contact with him. Maybe a second. But Beers finishes his check on Creighton Reed and takes him into the board. When he first made contact, he's right beside the crease, right along the goal line, and hits him, and basically the momentum takes them the five feet into the boards. Now, unfortunately, Creighton Reed had to leave the game, and from what I've been told, has had to gone to the ho- had to go to the hospital post game and have season ending surgery. It looked like a shoulder injury to me. Could have been collarbone. He wasn't moving his right arm, and it was hanging there. And we really, truly do hope the best for Creighton Reed. So the argument now is who's to blame? I, you can't blame Matt Beers for what happened 20 minutes later. Because while the hit on Reed may have been excessive, in my opinion, I don't think it's dirty. I think it was the impact of how Reed went into the boards with Beers holding him and hitting him into the boards that caused the injury. I don't blame Rob Williams. I don't blame anybody on Burnaby. I don't really even blame Amesbury. Amesbury was just doing what he does. He gets retribution for his teammates, and he picked Peter McFetridge. Did he go over the line? Probably. Could he have thrown like three or four, and then once the refs got in and broke it up, stopped? Probably. But as the argument has gone on, it now becomes for players to start having respect for each other. Logan Chuss said it on Twitter. Why do you think so many guys aren't playing in the WLA anymore? Whether they've just decided not to play, take a summer off, or have gone back east. It's because the players in BC don't respect one another. It's that way in a lot of lacrosse. Guys could care less if they two-hand you across the shin and you can't go to work the next day. It's all for the team. For the W. Do what it takes to win. Well, guys, there's a line. Again, I'm not placing blame on anybody for what happened Sunday night. But I will say this. If guys don't start respecting the players and respecting the game, then the WLA and Canadian Summer Lacrosse will continue to die. It will continue to get less and less coverage and fewer and fewer fans and continue to be left in the dark and never on TV. Fighting has its place in lacrosse. I don't think fighting should be banned. I think they should take the instigator rule out and let players police themselves. But at the end of the day, it's the players who are held accountable. Not the sticks, not the posts, not the boards, not the refs. The refs have a bit of a say. But in the end, it's the players who are swinging the sticks. It's the players who are swinging the fists. So, 
We have to find a way to get it through guys' heads that it's not the 60s anymore. It's not the 70s or the 80s anymore. Respect the game. Respect the players. The game will flourish if we start to do that. But until it does, we will still get dragged through the mud anytime something like this happens. And people just think, look at the thuggery of lacrosse. So we shall wait and see. One last WLA story before I get out of here. Russ Hurd, the New Westminster Senior Salmon Bellies assistant coach, played a game Wednesday, uh, Friday night. That's right. At 52 years, four months and 10 days, Russ Hurd played a Western Lacrosse Association game. The Bellies were down a few bodies. They had played the night before. So they thought, why not let Russ play? But there's a cool underlining story to this, and I'll try to make this quick because we all know I like to talk. Russ Hurd is a New West guy. Grew up playing in New West. Played his minor there. Played his junior ball there. Even played three senior games as a junior. A call-up for his hometown bellies. However, he was drafted by Burnaby and never played for the bellies again. Until last Friday. Where, after being retired for eight years or so, he became a carded member of the newest Minster Salmon Bellies. For the first time in his career, he was a carded member for the Senior Bellies. And I was completely shocked when I saw him on the floor, so shocked that I thought it was Peter Park. Not gonna lie, thought it was Peter Park. But it was Russ Hurd. And he went up there, and you know what? He didn't look out of place. At times, you could tell that he was a 52-year-old man. But at times... He looked like a 42-year-old man or a 32-year-old guy out there battling with some of the best NLL defenders you got out there. The Harnets were there. Burton was there. Like, And he held his own. He was even sloughing guys off trying to get to the net. It was great to see. I'm so happy for Russ Hurd that he finally got that experience. It was his son's birthday, I believe. His wife was in town, or at least she was watching online. Um... But what a, what a great, great story for Russ Hurd to finally play a game as a carded member of the senior Salmon Bellies. We talked a lot. Uh, we explored a lot. And it's time to get out of here. Thanks to Steve Dietrich. Thanks to Jeff Cornwall. And thank you to you, as always. Game two of the National Lacrosse League Finals goes on Sunday. You can catch the game live on TSN and TSN Go, as well as ESPN3. Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. The Rush will look for back-to-back -back titles and create a very rare feat of winning and moving and winning again. And it's going to be an incredible match. My name is Teddy Jenner. At Off the Crossbar is the Twitter account. Teddy.Jenner at gmail.com is the email. We'll talk to you in a week's time. Enjoy game two, everybody. Be excellent to each other. Woman, don't try to love me. Don't try to understand.